0: Now, we are uh, in a series for the first time in a long time on uh, money. I'll talk about it a long time in, in a little bit. I know that the church has not done a good job over the years talking about money. And I know it gets a bad rep. I get it. That's why I avoid it. I have a, I, I have a friend whose mother um, is, is um, very Italian and, and she s- speaks kind of with broken English. And I was at a wrestling match with her one day. And she said to me, John, tell me about your church and money. And I said, uh, well, that was kind of weird. And I said, uh, she goes, how much do people give in your church? I said, I don't know how much people give. What do you you mean? I said, well, I I don't know. I said, you know, that the elders keep me from knowing. And and so you should know that. Like, if you're giving, like, you know, tithing here, really giving sacrificially, and and you've, you've thought to yourself, boy, I can't believe John's never thanked me. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't know. Um, but, but seriously, thank you. Um, and, and so I said to her, I, I don't know what people give. And uh, she says, I, I am going to come but to your church. And I said, well, why? And she said, do you know I went to church today? And I, I get to home and there's a knock at my door. And it, it's, it's the priest. And he says that to me, he did not like what I put in the basket that, that day, And uh, it's a true story. The, the pastor showed up at the church, knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, that wasn't enough. We need round two. And, uh, so I understand that the church over over the years has not done a great job teaching on money, and it's much it's kind of been becoming it's become more about like collecting money than teaching on money. So I want you to understand that I get that I get it so much, and I'm so interested in trying to reach the 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that don't know Jesus. I've avoided teaching on money because it becomes a stumbling block for people. Like I know I I know somebody's here for the first time today and is going, I you know I show up and sure enough the church talking about money. I get it, right? Now, let me, let me uh, help you understand something. We've tried our best not to focus on this at, strategically and, and to a fault, literally to a fault. Um, last year, I told you I've been here since 1992. I can't remember a teaching on money or at least a series on money. An old timer emailed me this week and said, no, there was one in January or February of 94. Um, so, so. We've only avoided it for 23 years, not for 25. Um, but I, as a pastor, I, as somebody that, that the, you, know, I, you know, as your pastor, I'm supposed to be teaching you the Word of God. I can't avoid it because I, the Bible doesn't shy away from it. Jesus taught on money more than any other thing except for the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God the most, but then the thing he talked about the second most was money. Crown Financial Ministries, one of the preeminent kind of financial ministries in our day, has counted 2,350 verses on finances and possessions in the Bible. If that's true, if there are 2,350 verses on finances in the Bible, that means there are more verses written on money and possessions than all of Paul's letters in the New Testaments combined. I can't be a good pastor. My daughter said last night, she's like, I'm working on this talk. Said, I'm having a really hard time with these talks, mostly because there's so much stuff. She goes, well, I said, man, it's really hard preaching on money. She said, well, why are you doing it? <laughs> um, which is probably what you're asking. Um, and I said, because I can't avoid it. At some point, you can't avoid it. Why? Because, as we discovered last week, it's not about money. It's about our heart. Now, here's what we know. We know that God doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts, but nothing competes for our hearts more than our stuff. God doesn't need our stuff. He's doing fine without your stuff. God God does not want to get your money. What God is trying to make sure is that your money does not get you. That's the danger. Jesus lays out in a couple of places in his teaching this profound concept that where your treasure is, where you're putting your stuff, where you're investing, that's where your heart is going to go. And in other words, if he wants your heart, what God would say is, I don't want to compete with it with your stuff. And since your heart follows your stuff, I want your stuff. This is not me talking. This is not Madame Hills talking. This is God talking. I want your stuff. All of it. Why? Because I want your heart. Where your stuff is, it's where your heart's going to be. Now, if you're a human being and you've worked it all in your life and some, I almost said young preacher, cross that off, some preacher (laughs) said to you, God wants your stuff, all of it, and you have a little internal flinch, join this young preacher because I have the same one. I get it. I mean, you know, some of you might be saying, look, all of it, I I don't mind throwing a 20 in the basket now and then. But you want all, God wants all my stuff? See, if if something. clicks in you when I say that, that's because A, you're a lot like me, and B, you have a massive misconception, just like I do, that is foundational in the scripture that we need to fix. Here it is, when I was a kid, I I stole my, I didn't steal, but I took my brother's motorcycle, It's a dirt bike, and I went out, we had some ramps by our house, and, you know, there's paths and all the rest, and I took it out, jumping, blah, 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 and I'm coming home, and I'm driving the motorcycle home, and it was illegal to ride on the roads, so I was cutting through um, some yards, and as I went to cut through a couple yards to get to my house, there was a high patch of grass, and so I thought it was just a high patch of grass, unmowed between the neighbors, and so I just took the motorcycle straight into it, but I didn't know there was a buried rock wall in there. So when I hit it with the motorcycle, the motorcycle went flying up into the air, and I, this is the only time in my life where I've seen something like an out-of-body experience where you like feel like you're watching it. I remember I was watching it from the tree line, and I felt myself go over the handlebars, you know, I was still holding on as I was flipping over them, and I came down and uh, watched the whole thing from the tree, and I remember feeling the grass flying by my face as I was flying down, you know, through the yard. And I kept thinking I'm going to hit the gravel any minute and I'm going to hit the gravel. Never did, thankfully. And so I got up and I dusted myself off and I looked back at the motorcycle and the motorcycle was kind of twisted up. And I'm going, man, my brother is going to be ticked. And uh, so I went back and I was pushing the motorcycle home when I looked down at my arm, which was hanging off um, because I had compound fractured it. and The bone had come through, but I was in shock and I didn't even know it. And, and, and so you know, I'll be out at the Engage Center afterwards showing you the plate and four screws if you like. But here's what I learned. I learned a valuable lesson. I always thought I was in control of that motorcycle, but I was actually just holding on. I never had control of it. Now, if you drive a motorcycle and you've ever crashed, you've come to that realization too. You start to realize, I don't really have control of this. I'm just holding on. There's an aha moment. It literally took me about two or three years before I could watch somebody on a motorcycle because I'd feel like screaming at them, you're not in control, you know, you're barely holding on. It was an aha moment. There is an underlying financial money management principle that I've come to understand partially now, and one day we will understand it in full. Just like the aha moment as I flew over the handlebar, when you study God's plan for money, you come to it. Here's what it is. It's not your stuff. You're not in control of it. It's not your stuff. You've, it's his stuff. You've just been given it to manage for a little while. Guys, this is as foundational a truth as there is in the scripture. If I were to tell you all the verses that talk about this, I'd be up here all afternoon. But let's start with where the Bible starts. How about this? First verse in the Bible. Open it up. You know, Gideon Bible hotel room. Here's the first thing you see. In the beginning. God created, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Old Testament and the New Testament writers of the scripture, they keep reminding the the readers of this principle over and over. Why? Because they don't want you to be duped into thinking that what you have is yours. Mendem, foundational, foundational, foundational. Check out the psalmist. He makes it as clear as possible. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, the world and all who live in it, it's all his. Everything in it is his. Psalm 89, the heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. This is everywhere on the scripture. If you learn nothing today, get that. Paul, in fact, at one point in the New Testament... he's writing to a church at Corinth. In the church at Corinth, they're arguing over if they can eat meat sacrificed to an idol. There have been laws against it. And now the the Christians are saying you can't eat it and others are saying you can't eat it. And Paul writes to them to clear up the argument. And you know what he says to them? He repeats the same truth. Back to the Psalms, back to Genesis 1. He says this, "The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Paul's saying, look, the good stuff, the bad stuff, like... It's all God's. There are not secular things and Christian things. There's not secular music and Christian music. There's not secular books and Christian books. It's all, everything, everything, everything that, that is here, everything that's been created. It's all his. It all belongs to him. Now, if you're a hardworking American, and I know how hard some of you work, you know, I, I know. I drove on Route 80 for 20 years every day. I know. I know that some of you get up and you go to the train station and you're in the city and you don't get home. and. I know how much much you've risked. I know the the, the student loans, the sweat and the sacrifice to get where you are, to have what you have. And there is no doubt you have earned it. In fact, the scriptures speak highly of those who work hard. It's encouraged. But it doesn't change the foundational truth because we fall into this. It's mine. I earned it. Look how hard I worked. But Moses would say this. Remember the Lord here—that's Yahweh. Remember, we talked about this. It's capitalized there. Remember Yahweh, your God, for it's He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's all His. We fall into the trap of thinking with money that it's our money, and the question that is asked of us is, how much are we going to give or donate? Not what we have is his stuff. And the question is, how are we going to manage it or steward it or invest it? Most of the Bible's teaching is about money. It's not about giving money. It's about managing God's stuff, stewarding it, caring for someone else's possessions. See, we have been given the privilege to manage a portion of God's stuff. Just like in the Garden of Eden, right? God placed Adam in the garden. How was the garden doing before Adam got there? Fine. Like it wasn't overrun with weeds, right? Like it was fine. And God placed Adam in it and said, I'm going to give you the privilege of working with me here. It's the same concept with God's stuff. He's still offering us the same privilege and the same responsibility. Now the time is coming and and we know this, you know, we've talked about it every once in a while somebody close to you dies or you go to a funeral, it's kind of like the curtain gets lifted on reality a little bit. The time is coming when that sham of, for me, of at one point being in the motorcycle, that got removed. But the sham of, uh, of this stuff being our stuff will come to an end. Have you been to a funeral lately? Because all of the coffins, I've yet to go to one that's, you know, six, six feet wide, too. Like, there's not much you can put in there. There's not a lot of extra room for your stuff. And part of understanding the foundational truth of it's not yours is understanding this. You're leaving his stuff here. Solomon, who biblically is regarded as the wisest man who ever lived, this is the realization he came to. He says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and everybody, come, as they come, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Paul got the same concept, New Testament, right? When he said to Timothy, for we bought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of the world. Do you know what money is in this world? See this in several places in the scripture. Money is a test for managing God's resources. Here's what Jesus said. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. But whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you, listen church, and if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And he finished with the same warning as we went over last week. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. And so God has trusted you with this stuff and he's watching to see how you're going to handle it. And guess what? In a few years, and it goes quick, in a few years when this life is over... You are going to hand all of that stuff over to someone else. And it will become for them a test. And God will see what they do with his stuff. And they'll manage it for a little while. And then they'll hand it off to somebody else. The test runs in perpetuity. All right, so foundational point made. It's not your stuff, it's his stuff, all of it. And he wants us to manage it with him as the priority. To store up for ourselves treasures in heaven so our hearts would be with God, not down here. But as I left last week, hon, would you hand me those buckets? As I left last week, I kept thinking to myself, I haven't spoken practically about how do you practically store up for yourself treasures in heaven? What does that look like practically? Every week, for some of you every other week, I work at the church, and, and it's cheaper for us to get paid monthly. So for, for us, we get paid monthly. Um, every week, every other week, or, or once a month, you get automatically, most of you get automatically deposited into your account a little hunk of God's treasure. It gets dropped right in there. And every week or every other week, you have a management steward choice to make about how you're going to... To, to spend what you're going to do to invest, how are you going to steward God's stuff. And so what I want to spend the rest of the morning message on is just very practically speaking, biblically speaking, and the Bible speaks a lot about it, I want to talk to you about how, what is the plan? How do you tre- build treasure over there? And so I'm going to give you the John Eisman three-point plan to financial success, which you should have probably no interest in, because... I'm not that wildly financially successful. However, it's not my plan. What I've really done is slap some alliteration on some biblical concepts that I'm going to give you. And here's what I will tell you. If you will commit to following this plan, not only will you honor God with your possessions, not only will you be a good steward, you will avoid the dangerous trap that money can represent for your life, For your legacy, for your family, and for your soul. So here's the plan. It's a three-point plan. It's three Ps. Plan, priority, and percentage. Plan, priority, and percentage. Let's start with a plan. Many of you have financial advisors. Heck, I mean, if you just invest in a retirement account at work, right, you have a financial advisor because you're investing in managed funds, You know, you get those thick prospectus in the mail if you're in a 401k. That's the plan. They're sending you the plan. Maybe you have a financial planner. You meet with them a couple times a year to discuss the plan, what he or she's going to do with your money, how they're going to invest it. Guys, you would never simply hand it over to someone and say, hey, man, whatever. Do whatever you want with it, whatever. (laughs) Yet. Yet. Most of us in this room run our personal finances this way every single day. Treasures get deposited every other Friday. Stuff happens, and well, by like Tuesday, we're going, man, how am I going to make it to next Friday? And the answer often becomes, you know, a credit card. Now, if you look around the room, here's what I want you to do. Look to your left, look to your right. Statistically, neither of those people has a plan for their money. It's very true. 66% of us have no plan for our money. The money comes in, the money goes out, and you sit around and go, I don't understand what happened, but I'm broke. Does that sound familiar to anybody? No plan, comes in, it goes out, and I'm broke. No goal, when you have no goal, you hit it every time. Guys, this is funny. But it's unbiblical, it's poor stewardship, and frankly, Jesus told some pretty scary stories about this kind of stewardship. Jesus doesn't tell scary stories about not giving enough. Jesus tells scary stories about stewardship, about dealing with God's stuff. Many of you know the parable of the talents, right? Jesus tells this story, landowner goes away and he calls three servants over and he gives to them each a portion of his estate and tells them to manage it in his absence. Does this sound familiar? not your stuff, but I'm going to give it to you and I want you to manage it. And two of them do this great job. They invest it. When the landowner comes back, he gives it to them and he utters those famous lines, right? You know, many of us as Christians, you've heard this over the years. want to go to heaven, I want to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, that's written about money management. Now the third one, the third one, he, ha- he doesn't have a plan. And so he, he just, he doesn't want to lose it. So he just buries it. And so when the landowner comes back, not my words, but Jesus's, here's what he said to the one with no plan. You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You should have had a plan. So take, this is going to sound familiar, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Because remember, money is a test. And then Jesus says, in language that's pretty tough, about bad stewardship, throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. P, plan, Star it, asterisk, important. Most of us don't have one. Proverbs 27 says that you should know the condition of your flock and you should give attention to your herds. Paul told the Corinthians, moreover, he said, moreover, it is required of stewards, that's you, that they be found trustworthy. So step one of any kind of biblical money management plan is to get a plan. So here's what I'm going to do, because I don't want to just be blowing smoke at you. I want you to get on a plan. I'm going to give you one. It's not mine. I'm going to give you Dave Ramsey. Uh, Dave Ramsey has a budgeting plan. It's the, Dave Ramsey is probably the preeminent financial stewardship voice in our culture today. He's got five New York Times bestsellers on, on money. He's the founder of a, of a Financial Peace University. And I've put together, I haven't put it together, I've gotten for you, his package on budgeting. I got about 10 copies of them out at the... Uh, um, and, uh, the uh, Engage Center not enough for you but you could take a look at it and then what we've done is on our site if you go to Engage on the Menham Hill site you can pull it down I want to challenge you to look at it it is a really good plan he lays out what your percentages should be for each category housing, utilities, all the rest and this forces you to make decisions it forces you to be a good steward with God's stuff All right, so the first thing you got to do is plan. Here's the second thing. The second thing is every week when payday hits, you have, with God's little bit of treasure that he's given you, you have three stewardship choices and you have two stewardship decisions with his treasure. What are you going to do with it? Well, the first thing you can do is you can spend it. We're really good at that. I don't need to train you in this. Now, the second thing you can do with it is you can save it. Not as good here. Getting better maybe as a nation, but, but not good. And the last thing that you can do with it is you can give. Everyone, there's only really three things you can do with your money. Right? I mean you talk about different other you know, but they're all subcategories of these three things. Those subcategories are all in that Dave Ramsey budget that you can pick pick up. Now, the question then becomes, there are two choices regarding these three options. And they have to do with percentages and priorities. Percentages and priorities, you get to decide every other week what the percentage of the treasure that goes in this bucket and that bucket and that bucket is and what priority you place them relative to putting money in them. Church, listen now, these two choices on percentages and priorities, percentages and priorities, they will determine in this life and the life to come your financial destiny percentages and priorities I am not overstating that now for most of us especially in America this is a real priority in fact what would you guess I heard this statistic this week okay so what would you guess statistically now the the average percent of our income that we spend on spending somebody throw out a number 60%? 70%? 80%? 90%? 85%? 60%? 70%? 80%? 90%? 85 The answer is, in America, we spend about 130% of what we're earning. Now, you, maybe you have a degree in math. You might look at it and go, gee, how does that work? Anybody have any clue how that works? Some of you are painfully aware of how this works. Well, this is a problem. Now, we know we should save, and, and, and as a culture, right, the culture has done uh, a pretty good job in creating pathways and avenues for savings. What do you think, in general, the average American family is saving, percentage-wise? Can you see that? Little cheaters. Four to five percent. You know, it's church, people. Church. I'm not taking this one out until you guess. What do you think we, uh, what do you think as Americans we tend to give? And this is kind of, it's been holding steady for a while and across income barriers and all the rest. What do you think we give? Two to three percent. Two to three percent. And guess what? That's the percentages we give. And guess what the priority is? Just as you see here, like, we spend, and luckily, most of us are smart enough to have some savings taken out automatically, because otherwise we'd all be in big trouble, right? A lot of us have it taken out automatically, so we save a little, and then if there's, like, anything left over, we, we might be willing to give that. Now, what I want to talk to you, what I want to argue is that if you would plan and change the order and the percentages of these three things, it will change your life, it will set you free, and you will be blessed this always always, always works. If you will fix the priorities and fix the percentages, your life will change for the better. Some of you know this. You've done financial peace. I had somebody in the hallway tell me how excited they were about financial peace, asked me if we were going to do it again, and we will be doing it again. And she's a single mom. She said, I did financial peace last year. And she goes, you know what I realized? I, about the middle of the month, I started kicking over the 100%. She's like, I was keeping track, and all of a sudden I realized I'm spending 130% of what I make. But if you will change these, if you will change the percentages and change the priorities, you will actually find what you're looking for. This is a huge issue. This is at the root and the cause of so much marital problems and so much much arguing and stress. I get emails about this. I got an email this week. This is an honest email. I got it this week from someone in our church that said this, John, first off, I can attest to the truth of Jesus' teaching about investing your treasure and your heart will follow after donating to various projects around the world and then going to see the schools and meet the kids where I've invested. My heart now has followed my money. And then they wrote this. They said, Eight years ago, I heard about the giving pledge to commit to give away half of your wealth while you're still alive. And so I thought, you know, that's a good idea. I'm going to do it. And I set up a 15-year plan to do it. And it was working fine for six years. But then two years ago, I got to thinking, well, why just one half? Why not give it all away? So I made a plan to give away all of it. My IRA, my savings, my investments, my collections, everything I owned, I was going to give away. As an older gentleman, everything I owned, I was going to give away over the next 10 years. Here's the crazy thing. Last year, I gave away 10% 10 of everything I own, all of it. A year later, I have just as much in my accounts as I had a year ago. How did that happen? Paul spells it out in 2 Corinthians that God will generously provide all that you need and then you will have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. He wrote, frankly, I don't think I ever truly believed that before. But now after actually doing it, all I can say is, wow, trust God. God. Biblically, this concept of priority and percentages, it's in lots and lots of places, but maybe nowhere coupled more powerfully than in, this, in the writings of Malachi, who was an Old Testament prophet, who said this to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. He said, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says Yahweh. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? And so Israel, in a sense, just like any child, would be saying, wait, Dad, what What are you talking about? How, Dad, how do we show contempt for you? I mean, we've been following your commands. We brought sacrifices into the temple. We followed the letter of the law to which God answers their question. He says, let me show you how. He says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering one of those to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says Yahweh? Now, a lot of you know in the temple at that time, there was a sacrificial system in place, and you were commanded to bring the best of your sheep, the best of your animals, the best of your fruit. In fact, the first fruit that came... And bring that to God as a sacrifice. But Israel, as their heart grew cold towards God, started getting things kind of mixed up. Their priorities got messed up. In a sense, their percentages got messed up. And they started bringing what was left over. Not the best lamb, but the lame lamb. Not the lamb with two eyes, the lamb with three eyes. That's what they started to bring. God goes, you wouldn't eat that thing. But you bought it here. To which I would say, I saw this at my house just last week on Halloween. We had some friends over who had a little girl, and, and we live in a neighborhood with a lot of houses, so they brought the little girl over to, to trick or treat in our neighborhood. She's cute as a button, couldn't be sweeter, and she got back and she had her, she got a little bit of a OCD, and she she dumped her candy out on the island and she started putting it in order, right? And so she had a, she had priorities and percentages, right? And her priority number one was there's some people that live down the street that work for M&M Mars, and they were giving away the full size candy bar. And so category one was full-size, you know, M&M Mars people product. Category two, you had your gummy products, which she was a fan of, right? Category three, you had uh, fun-size bars, which she got from us, of course. Um, And then category four was a smaller category. It had two things in it. I believe it was a popcorn ball and a granola bar. And so I said to this young little cherub, you know, you can't trick-or-treat in Mr. Eisman's neighborhood for free. Part of, of, of the reality here is that <laughs> I should get a cut of, of what you have here because, you, you know, you didn't earn this. Uh, this, is, this is partially, it's all my neighborhood, so, so I just want some. <laughs> At first, she protested. She was un- uninterested in sharing any of it, but I insisted and you know what I was rewarded with? A granola bar. Because she wasn't going to eat it anyway. There you have the teachings of Malachi 1 from a four-year-old. But Malachi would go on. He said, ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and you haven't kept them? He says, look, come back to me. It's a hard thing, right? Return to me. I'm going to return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? I don't understand. I gave you a granola bar. I don't understand. Plate went by. I put a 20 in it just last week. God answers. Tell you how you're robbing me. In tithes and offerings. Now, I'm going to stop just for a moment because I know this is familiar to some of you, but it wasn't for me when I was a believer in the Bible, the Lord has established a pattern of giving for Israel called first fruit giving, priorities, right? You give of your first fruit, the scripture said. So when the crop grew, you cut the first crop down and you bought it to the temple and sacrificed it. Why? Because it taught you to rely on God that there was more coming. You bought your best animal to God. Why? Because it taught you to rely in God we trust. It forced the reliance upon God first fruit giving. But then there was a concept of a tithe. A tithe simply means 10%. And Israel was commanded by God in in several places, Deuteronomy and Leviticus specifically, commanded to bring into the temple for God's use 10% of whatever they had. Actually, for Israel, it was more than 10%. In Israel, there were three tithes. So if you go, well, 10%, that seems like a lot. Israel had three tithes. In total, as you added them up, it was about 23%, because one was taken every other year. It was about 23% of the national income was bought into the temple every year. And what God is saying, is not that you're not giving to Israel. He's saying, but giving has lost its priority for you. You're just giving what's left over. He continues, he goes, look, you're you're under a curse. Your whole nation, you're you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and there'll be food in my house. And then, the only place in Scripture God says this test me in this. The only place in Scripture God says to test them is in regards to money. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room enough to store it. God promises His people look, move towards me, move towards me again. Put your treasure here. Your heart will move towards me and you'll find the peace you're looking for. Prioritize me with your money. It's not about money. It's about your heart. He doesn't want to compete with your stuff. And that's why we have to give first. We we have to give in percentages, not merely a dollar amount. how, How do we get it right? Well, we have to switch the buckets. Like, This is the biblical mandate for how you handle his stuff. That Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Then these things will be added unto you. You ever thought about it? If you got this right and you got that right, that kind of takes care of itself. When you're spending 130% up front, this becomes a mess. God wants to turn the list upside down. If you seek me first, if you seek me ahead of your stuff and your security and your comfort, if you do that, I'm telling you, I will provide the rest for you. That's the biblical plan. You give, you save, and then you spend God's kingdom first and your kingdom second, and you live on the rest. This is not about me getting money from you. I know, you know. I know sometimes this can be cynical. John's just trying to get money. First of all, my, my salary, you should know, is set by the elders. I, you know, it is not based off of giving. So I'm not benefiting by from giving. Number one. Number two. If you're not from Menham Hills and you're hearing this, you know, I know, you know, your wife dragged you here this morning, or you know, you're dating the hot girl that is a Christian, and so you're here this morning, um, and you're going, I can't, I can't believe that this guy, I'm, you know, hearing this. Listen, this is true for you. I'm not ashamed of this. This is true for you, but here's what I want you to do. Don't give your money here. If you're not a mend in person, don't give your if you're a mend in person, you should biblically give your money here. But if you're not a mend in person, don't give your money here. And test the Lord in this and see if it's true. Now, what about the percentages? Well, we know we know this. These percentages are bad. When you get this new system of priorities, you need to set a plan in place about percentages. You need to make those decisions. God is not interested in dollar amounts. Anybody know the story? Jesus tells the story of the widow's mite. She walks into the temple, right? Everybody's dropping big sums in, big sums in, big sums in, big sums in. She's not saying a word. This woman hobbles up there and puts in what scripture says is the smallest Roman coin. And Jesus says, stop. Everybody look. That woman gave the most. It's not about dollars, it's about percentages. She, she put everything she had in there and trusted God. When Joan and I first got married, we lived, Larry Burkett was the financial guy, not Dave Ramsey then. Some of you are old enough to remember Larry Burkett. And Joan and I, I was really afraid of screwing up financially. And, uh, and so we lived on, a, on an envelope system. And so I would cash my paycheck every week, literally cash it down to, I mean, I'd ask, it drove them crazy. You know, I'd be asking for tens and fives and ones. And I'd go home and we had envelopes. I had an envelope for everything. I'm a little type A. Um, I mean, like, I'd be like car maintenance, you know, I'd have a little good went and envelope every month. But, and so then, okay, I'm really type A, because then I had them in alphabetical order, um, so I could always find the envelope I wanted. The only envelope, you know, I'm not praising myself here, because I have some growth, I, I, I have growth here I need. But the only envelope that wasn't in alphabetical order? Tithe, I put it first. I said, I'm going to put my money in that envelope before I put more, any money anywhere else. Money goes in that envelope first. That's how you prioritize giving into the kingdom of God. That's how you prioritize building your treasure there. Listen, you, there's a great tool. I'm promoting this tool. I'm unabashedly promoting this tool. If you, if you want to make sure that you're not, you're not tempted to, to unwind this, you do, you do this with your savings. You, you say, I need to make sure I save. That's a priority. So I have it taken out. I would ask you to do the same thing with your giving. Go online, calculate out the percentage that you're going to give, and have that money pulled out of your account, every paycheck, first fruits, first thing that comes out is my giving. And the question is, you might say, how much? Well, here's the deal. (laughs) You know, is it 10%? Please, John, don't say it's 23%, it's 10%, right? Here's the deal. The Levitical law of the tithe of 10%, we don't live under Levitical laws anymore. Jesus came so that our failure to live up to those laws... It was was our inability to live up to that law, which was condemning us, which was keeping us from God. The scripture is clear on two accounts. The first is that Jesus did not come to to abolish the law. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law on our behalf. So we are not required by the law to tithe. Good news. But Jesus did not invalidate the teaching of a tithe. I'd actually go a step further. Here's what I'd say. It is more important for you, first off, to be a cheerful giver. God does not want your money. He wants your heart. Okay, so if you're sitting there going, dude, there's no way, God doesn't want your money. Okay? Paul says each person should give as he's decided in his heart. Not under compulsion or reluctantly, but out of love for Christ. Here's what I would say. Everything is better in this new covenant of Jesus. Everything is greater under Christ. Everything is better under Christ than it was under the law. So let me ask you a question. Why would giving under Christ be less than giving under the law? Can somebody help me make sense of that? It makes no sense. I would say that the tithe should be kind of like the minimal target we're trying to look at. I understand I'm talking, somebody told me after the first service, you're really brave. Um, I understand that that's not easy. But I'm not sure why under the new covenant, when so much has been given to sacrifice for us, we would suddenly start to say, oh, we don't need to listen to that old tithe thing. That's psh. I get this. It's hard. Maybe you can't switch it overnight, but you can switch it. You can move it towards God. You can commit to making a plan, prioritizing how you handle God's treasures. If you go out and pick up that, da- this is Dave Ramsey's material. He will show you the percentages. He's got percentages for saving, utilities, car. Get on a plan. As the band comes up, I would just encourage you with these closing words of David. Tim shared them with me this week, and I had a friend that used to say them all the time. When we used to go to Guatemala, he used to say them, say all the time, when I thank him for coming, he would look at me and he would remind me of the story of David. God had told King David that he was required to give this offering, and so, so David goes uh, in search of the offering, and he runs into another kind of good man, and the man says to David, you know what, here, here's the offering, just take it from me and go and offer it to God, to which David... Uh, realizing who he is and who God is and what God has done, God looked at him and said, quote, I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I'm not giving God my granola bars anymore. And so doing, David became a little bit more like God one who on David's behalf and on your behalf and on my behalf, God would also offer what the Bible describes as a first fruit offering of new life. He would offer his son at great cost. And when we handle the Lord's stuff with a plan, when we prioritize our giving, when we make it first, when we move towards God on a percentage basis, not just just talking about Dollars, but, but really, really saying, no, 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 first it goes to God, a significant portion. We become a little bit like David, but more importantly, we become a little bit more like our father in heaven. Who knows quite a bit about giving and sacrifice. Let me pray. Father, we've been sloppy as a people. By any measure, we've been sloppy as a people. We pray, number one, we thank you that mercy triumphs judgment, that you don't stand in judgment over us on this, but that mercy on us triumphs over that. And Lord, I know many in the room desire to have their hearts move towards you and have you move towards us. So Lord, would you take this truth and bury it deeply in our heart? Convict us to get, us, to get on a plan and then open our eyes as, as we test you in it. Open our eyes to what you're doing in our lives, providing for us, helping us, holding us, and giving us peace. In Jesus' name I pray.